Welcome to this first Sunday edition of Christ and Country. Today, I will be talking about the example we see from the Lord Jesus Christ in John chapter 2 and Luke chapter 19. Now, how many of us have been told over time that emotions are bad? As men, we are sent one of two messages by the culture, which is confessing to any emotion makes you weak, and expressing anger is a sign of being not evolved or backwards. You would join me in being slightly confused as those two messages seem to contradict one another. You see, the problem with this is that there is something deep within us that produces a reaction when we hear of evil being given a free pass. How many of us remember Casey Anthony being acquitted of having killed her child so that she could party? Or Elizabeth Smart, a child being abused and held captive for 17 years. And how many of you would join me in saying there was something deep within us that understood that that was wrong? That when we hear about these things, it causes up to causes us to stand up and say, this is not right. That something is a level of emotion and concern that was given to us by God. Jesus demonstrates for us that emotion is not the enemy. Surrender to emotion without placing those feelings in a larger context is what really gets us into trouble. Jesus' example gives us a process and a framework that allows us to process and channel those feelings in a way that glorifies God. You see, Christ understood the basic root of the problem. Going back to the Old Testament, we see a root of animal sacrifice. When the Jews were held in slavery in Egypt, as is told in the beginning of the book of Exodus, God sent Moses to tell Pharaoh to let his people go. When Pharaoh refused, God sent a series of plagues designed to force Pharaoh to yield to God's command. The final plague involved the death of all the firstborn in the land of Egypt. God came to Moses and told him to kill a lamb and spread its blood over the doorpost. This was designed so that when the spirit that would be sent across Egypt would leave Hebrew children alive. This was the basis of what the Jews call Passover and what Christians call Easter. The blood, you see, was a symbol of God's mercy and forgiveness from the very foundation of Israel as a nation. This was one of many passages that pointed the way forward to Christ himself. After being liberated from slavery, however, there was still a problem. How could a holy and righteous God live with an imperfect and rebellious people? After leaving Egypt, God gave animal sacrifice as a means of atonement, a means of forgiveness that enabled people to come closer to God and vice versa. Worship in the context of the Old Testament was a sacrificial system, sacrifice as the means by which a holy God could commune with sinful man. In the world that Jesus steps into, priests were using that worship to line their own pockets. 
Those of us over a certain age remember in the 1980s the stories of Jim Baker and Jimmy Swaggart, televangelists who lined their own pockets with the hard-earned money people thought they were giving for God's work. When priests were defrauding people that Jesus came to save and to serve, that struck a chord. You see, there's something deep within us that recognizes these wrongs and cries out that we must do something to stop it. Why? Because in those moments, we see these situations as God does. That sense of righteous anger, that sense of righteous indignation that rises up in us is the nature of God that was built into us to rise up and reflect God's image and God's priorities. You see, God's priorities impacted Jesus' view of the entire situation. No justification for impeding people in their ability to come into relationship with God could ever be offered that would be anything remotely resembling acceptable. Beyond robbing both God and the people, the priests were also calling God a liar. You see, after their liberation from slavery under Pharaoh, God's promise to every tribe of Israel was that they would have an inheritance in the land Israel was going to. The exception to this was the tribe of Levi, the tribe that would become the priests. The inheritance God promised the priests was God himself. See, this was a promise of both presence and provision. Presence relied on relationship with God, that his presence would be there among them, that they would experience that level of relationship, and that level of relationship would then allow them to minister to the people. That relationship would also lead to provision in which God would supply for their material needs. By working the system to line their own pockets, they were calling the very word they were called to teach the people, that word was being called into question. And all of this played into how Jesus viewed what he saw when he stepped into the temple on those two occasions. So what did Jesus do? Well, first he responded according to the scriptures by quoting the scriptures. My house shall be called a house of prayer. The new Marcus translation of that would be, since the priests don't think this is important, let's you and I have a conversation about what God thinks is important. Jesus was bringing the focus back onto God and not onto the priests who were abusing the system to benefit themselves and those in charge. His response was also a witness to others. Disciples would later remember, zeal for thy house shall consume me. They remembered the Old Testament scriptures. They remembered Jesus having fulfilled them, and that led them to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. In what is often our worst possible moment, that is when we are being watched most closely. Our response impacts more than just us. People who are watching see us. They see how we behave. They see how they respond, how we respond. And that can either drive someone away from God or it can drive someone to the cross. How does your response and mine impact those around us today? Jesus' response used all of his talents and his abilities. The fact that he made a whip 
indicates the passage of time. It indicates that he thought about this response before engaging in it. Contrast that with the popular image of Jesus going manic and out of control. The reality is Jesus knew exactly what he was doing and he was responding to clear the temple and restore right worship and right relationship of God to his people. Now, when he was confronted afterwards, Jesus did not hesitate to push back because the message went beyond the Pharisees to a larger audience. Jesus was speaking to those who wanted genuine freedom. The Romans wanted global domination. Jews wanted political independence. The Pharisees and the Sadducees wanted spiritual and financial control. Jesus was interested in communicating to people beyond that, that even in a world where they had whatever they wanted, problems would still persist. That message applies to you and I today. Despite having more technology and control of more resources than at any other time in human history, do we still have problems? Is the economy a problem right now? Depending on who you are, it may be. Do people lock their doors at night? Yes, they do. Genuine freedom involves a spiritual situation, not a political and economic one, or economic one. The Pharisees and the Sadducees never got to that point, and the question I would pose to you today is, will you and I get that? Christ was and is calling anyone who would listen to real freedom that can be found only in the context of genuine relationship. That call to freedom extends to you and I today. When we look to Christ's example, we see the whole person revealed in Scripture. You see, in the crucifixion, what we see is someone going to the cross for a crime they did not commit for a penalty we could not pay. That's not the modern example of Jesus that we see, though, is it? We see Jesus as some sort of celestial, ancient world hippie driving a VW bus with product in his hair, but that doesn't quite fit with the man's man that we see who goes to the cross on our behalf, yours and mine. Just as we see Christ for the whole person Scripture revealed to him, he also wants us to engage in terms of the whole person that God has created us to be. We know from Genesis chapter 3 and Romans chapter 3 and chapter 6 that sin has polluted the environment and it has polluted us. What was Israel's problem? Again, going back to the Old Testament, how does a holy God commune with an unholy and a righteous people? That describes every single one of us. It describes me and it describes you separate from the intervention of Christ. Instead of animal sacrifice, God provided the ultimate sacrifice in the form of himself. You see, Romans chapter 1 verse 16 tells us that God grants salvation at the foot of the cross to everyone, Jew and Greek. As we read from the Apostle Paul, we understand that the gospel is about Jesus having provided himself and having been raised from the dead, having power that he now extends to anyone who would open the door and invite him in. 
See, the gospel places sin in a larger context in which God's grace is greater than any sin that we have committed or we ever could commit. Romans chapter 3 verses 22 through 26 can be boiled down into two fundamental statements. I am a great sinner, but Christ is a greater Savior. You see, God does the work, not us. Our job, our assignment, is to respond. And so the question that I would pose to you today is, how will you respond to Christ? Will you open yourself up to the claims of the gospel? I would invite you to join with me this weekend in considering what the Bible has to say about us, about Jesus, and about the desires that Jesus has for us. As we respond, we will see who we were made to be. We will see that Christ is calling us not to less, but to more. Join me next weekend when we will be talking about that more when we will be talking about who God created us to be and how we can walk in that fundamental truth. Thanks for joining me for this special Sunday edition of Christ and Country. I hope you have a wonderful day today.